minus 21 seconds. A solid uh, rocket booster engine gimbal now underway. T minus 15 seconds. This is how your world works. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Feeling the, the reverberations in your chest as these things would thunder off the pad was a phenomenal feeling. Just this remarkable flying that could do something that no vehicle had ever done before. The future doesn't belong to the faint hearted, it belongs to the brave. January 28, 2016 marks 30 years since the cold Florida morning the Space Shuttle Challenger launched into the sky, traveled for 73 seconds, then broke apart, shocking the country and marking what we now see with the long passage of time as a key inflection point in America's relationship with space. It came at a time when shuttle flights seemed routine. It was a point of focus for the children of America as a teacher, Krista McAuliffe, was on the crew. And it turned out to be an organizational failure that rocked NASA. Author Margaret Lazarus Dean interviewed politicians, scientists, journalists, and civilians who were part of the events of that day to compose an oral history for popular mechanics. On today's show, you'll hear my interview with Margaret, as well as the voices of people she interviewed. This is how your world works. So the 25th space shuttle mission is now on the way after more delays. And I looked at her and I said, I, I think they mean the shuttle. A space shuttle challenger Everything seemed to be all right this morning, and then... This is not standard. This is not something that is planned, of course. But we all were looking at it, watching, watching, and we're looking at each other, and we all knew something was wrong, because the Challenger never came out from behind the cloud. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. My guest today is the author Margaret Lazarus Dean. For the February issue of Popular Mechanics, she wrote an oral history of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. She's also written a novel, The Time It Takes to Fall, that prominently features the Challenger disaster, as well as a work of nonfiction called Leaving Orbit, Notes from the Last Days of American Spaceflight, that covers the shuttle program in general. Margaret, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. In this piece, you've talked to, I believe, upwards of two dozen people. That seems daunting. I was wondering if maybe... You could start just by explaining a little bit about what it was like going out and finding the people to talk to to do this story. Yeah, we had started with the idea um, of just trying to track down a lot of people who are closely involved in some way. Um, so astronauts, family members, people who are working in mission control, people who are working at the Kennedy Space Center that day, um, people who are in the White House with President Reagan, just, you know, a really broad kind of group of people who would have really important memories from that day. The first person I spoke to was Steve Nesbitt. He was the public affairs officer um, working in mission control that day, which means that his job was to sort of narrate what was happening during the launch. So he played a really important role that day just in interpreting for people what was going on, um, and a lot of us remember his voice. Roll program confirmed. Challenger now heading down range. Steve Nesbitt, NASA public affairs officer working at Mission Control. I did have a friend of mine who had been scheduled to do the launch on uh, Challenger's Mission 51L, but he had just come off of a very long, um, the, the previous mission I think was 61C, 
And they that just went on and on, and that mission just extended, and he was so tired. And I said, I'll only take your shift for you. I'll do the launch of uh, the Challenger mission. He he talks a little bit about the lead-up, how the, the mission had been scrubbed multiple times. I was wondering if you could maybe set up what the build-up to launch day was like. Yeah, there had been um, just a lot of trouble leading up to this launch. And even before that, with the previous launch, you know, they have to go in a certain order. And the, the launch that went before Challenger had a lot of problems and was pushed back many times. Challenger originally had been on the books to launch in December of 85. But even in the week before Challenger actually launched, which was on January 28, 1986, there were launches and scrubs almost every day, day after day. So I think the astronauts were getting pretty tired of this. Challenger had not the most scrubs and delays of any flight, but it's, it's pretty high on the list. So, you know, we were, we were getting pretty tired, obviously, of uh, delays, but that was not unusual. It was pretty common you know, to have launch delays for various reasons because, you know, some of the most conservative people you would ever find are in mission control. And um, um, so uh, if, if something wasn't right uh, that anybody knew about, um, you know, they, would, they were quite willing to, uh, to delay and come back another day. You know, actually wasn't really sure that we would be going on that particular day uh, because uh, yeah, I do remember it was quite cold and we had people looking at you know ice teams out looking at things. And uh, another person I spoke to who was on the closeout crew, he remembers saying to Dick Scobie, um, who was the commander, you know, it's, it's awfully cold, isn't that strange? And Scobie said, no, cold weather is clear weather and clear weather is good flying weather. Um, so I think for you know for a lot of people looking at the sky that day it was cold but it, it was beautiful clear weather and that you know should should have been great launching weather. It's just another launch. We'll cover it. We'll file our piece again. We'll go back to the hotel, go to sleep, and that'll be the end of it. And you know we'll head back home on the 29th. So you know that was kind of the mentality. It's routine. John Zarella, a CNN correspondent, was at the Space Center that morning to report on the launch. We got to the Cape, and of course. Everybody knows it was bitter, bitter cold. And, you know, as everybody remembers the video, the the icicles on the vehicle and during the morning, and you could NASA sending out the ice team to the, you know, out there to the the launch pad to see what the story was. And the launch kept delayed while they were reviewing and looking at the data and, and checking everything. It almost looked like, you know, the sky was frozen. But of course, it turns out that the cold was was really the major problem. Yeah, I mean, really, the problem was a, a serious design flaw in in the rocket, and that um, became most pronounced in, in cold weather. The space shuttle launch vehicle had a, you know a bunch of different pieces on it. The the piece that looked like a plane that would um, travel through space on its own and land on the runway on its own. That's the thing that we call the shuttle, but it also had um, this giant orange tank full of fuel attached to it, and it had these two white solid rocket boosters on either side. And the boosters never quite worked the way they were designed to. They were brought to Florida in pieces and then assembled in Florida. And, you know, when you assemble pieces, there are joints between your pieces. And the joints just never quite behaved the way they should. There were O-rings in the joints to seal them, to keep um, hot gas from escaping. The joints behaved erratically, and, and the engineers who worked on them knew this and, and were working on this problem. And so there, there was knowledge, you know, within, within certain circles that this was a problem. 
some people had even noticed a pattern with the cold on colder days. Um, the the joints showed more signs of damage than in warmer weather, but that wasn't completely consistent. It wasn't like every time you launched below 50 degrees there was a problem, and every time it was warmer there wasn't. The pattern was not as clear maybe as it should have been, and no one quite knew, you know, how dangerous was this. It became a problem over time. The fact that they kept flying with this known problem made it seem illogically like maybe it wasn't really a problem, and of course, it was. How does the decision-making process about if it's okay to go ahead with launch work? Yeah, it's incredibly complex, and I've seen, you know, in some of the things that I've read about Challenger, um, these, you know, charts and diagrams of the decision-making process. I mean, the thing had, you know, hundreds of thousands of moving parts on it, many of them critical. You know, if this part fails, you lose the vehicle and the crew. And so the decision-making process was really complex. For the solid rocket booster, it was the, um, the contractor who built the solid rocket booster was Martin Fiacall in Utah. Their own engineers were responsible for making sure it was working the way it was supposed to, and they would have to sign off before each launch um, that they had checked it out and they felt it was safe to fly. So there was a teleconference the night before the launch of Challenger between engineers at Morton Fiacall and managers at Marshall Space Flight Center, which oversaw um, the solid rocket boosters. And these engineers at Morton Fiacall were saying, we should not fly in cold weather. We have not fixed this O-ring problem. We don't understand it. It seems to correlate with cold. You shouldn't launch tomorrow if it's cold. Somehow the way that decisions were made, and especially the way that information was passed up the chain of command, the people who made the final choice, we will go ahead and launch on January 28th, had not heard about these concerns at all. And really, at the at the root of it, that's the problem. You know, it's, it's a problem that the O-ring wasn't working, but the reason why we lost Challenger and why we lost these seven human beings is that that crucial piece of information didn't travel up as far the chain of command as it should have in order for a good decision to have been made. Four, three, two, one, and Bob Holler was a journalist with the Concord Monitor, and as a representative from Krista McAuliffe's hometown newspaper, he was paying particular attention to her parents. I was with her parents and her siblings, uh, who were in a public viewing area with um, a lot of the school kids who had come down from Concord. So um, I was there with them, and I was taking pictures of them, with sort of back to the launch, listening to the loudspeaker that does the countdown and all, the, and all of that. So, uh, you know, I, I very, in very sort of uh, visceral, you know, painful way, could watch through my lens the, the incredibly shocking, you know, um, transition from this, you know, moment of great pride and joy to utter, utter, uh, utter tragedy unfolding. You know, it gets in her parents' faces. Looks like a couple of the uh, solid
explosion occurred, from our vantage point, I don't know what other people have told you, but you could not see the fireball on the ground. We couldn't see it. But we all were looking at it, watching, watching, and then we're looking at each other, and we all knew something was wrong because Challenger never came out from behind the cloud. Kent Shocknick was the anchor for Los Angeles NBC affiliate KNBC. He covered the launch from the network studios in Los Angeles. You could look at the, the size and the asymmetry of that fireball the second it happened and know that that was not a solid rocket booster uh, being jettisoned. The first thing that went through my head was let the audience know that this is not something typical, that we're all looking at something way out of the ordinary. Uh, I'm a reporter. It's my job to look at things and say what I see. And it's also a part of my job not to say things that I don't know for certain. I believe in my heart that I knew at that second that all seven of the astronauts were dead. But I couldn't say that. The shuttle mission will launch, my God, one minute 15 There's been an explosion. Velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange distance 7 nautical miles. This is not standard. This is not something that is planned, of course. I can see a solid rocket booster has broken away. I cannot see the shuttle itself. I don't know if it's able to continue on one rocket booster. If it's able to jettison that rocket booster, it will be able to return to the Kennedy Space Center, perhaps. Children really had a special stake in Challenger with the school teacher being on the shuttle. In your story, you actually talked to teachers and students, and in fact, the title of the story in Popular Mechanics comes from uh, a teacher's recollection of one of her students that day. That teacher is Susan Capano, who actually taught at Concord High School, which is where Krista McAuliffe also taught. Susan Capano. As a rule, the school was just overwhelmed with excitement. We wanted every student to be able to see the launch. I had a classroom that had 30 desks, and I had about 60 kids in there, plus uh, um, eight or 10 teachers that had a free period standing in a line across the back of the room. That's where I was when, when, when the launch took place. Three, three, two, one. I remember that the, the line that came across the TV was, Mission Control says that the the vehicle has exploded. And one, one of the one of the girls in my classroom, I remember her first name, said, "What do they mean by the vehicle?" And I looked at her and I said, "I I think they mean the shuttle." And she got very upset with me. She said, "No, no, no! They don't mean the shuttle. They don't mean the shuttle." That's always been one of the things that's just sort of really especially awful about Challenger is that this launch in particular was one that children were encouraged to get excited about. Um, and that Krista McAuliffe had been chosen, you know, with such fanfare and excitement, the idea that a teacher was going to get to go to space. Um, not many people know this piece of it, but NASA had arranged for 
public schools all over the country to be able to watch the launch live, even though it was not covered on um, any of the national networks live. So it's sort of one of the strange ironies of this tragedy that, the, for the most part, the people who watched it live were children. There was one young woman, you know, she described the excitement of getting to see this person launch into space, watching this in her school cafeteria, having media there, you know, kind of, she described it as they were, you know, snapping cameras in your face, trying to get, you know, the, the kids' emotions of, you know, excitement of, of watching this launch, and then realizing that something had gone wrong and the, the way the day just turned on them. So this media presence that had been, you know, part of the excitement, now suddenly within seconds, the media are these people trying to get pictures of them crying. Here's Dan Rather reporting on CBS. The scenes we just showed you were from Mrs. McAuliffe's school in Concord, New Hampshire. A terrible scene there when the joy of the liftoff turned to the horror of the ball of fire explosion. Dan Rather, who you also spoke to, who basically says, you know, I I saw the smoke. I realized something terrible had happened, and then I ran to the studio, and I knew we'd be on air all day, and we were. It's remarkable. You know, he he appears on camera. He's clearly just come tearing down the hall. He's not prepared. He doesn't know what's going on. He's, you know, he, he covered the space program before, but he's not using quite the right terminology to describe everything. There's a lot of guessing of what's going on. And then, you know, over the course of the day, as he's being fed the information he needs and talking to correspondents and kind of pulling things together, he really is sort of assembling a a much firmer and and more accurate narrative of of what's going on. For those of you who've only had snippets of this story or who may be coming home saying, what is going on? The space is very dependable in the past. Uh, Space shuttle Challenger, everything seemed to be all right this morning. And then... uh, uh, just over a minute after liftoff, uh, trouble, an explosion. No indication of any survivors, and the word to Cape Canaveral is, you've seen the ball of fire, how could there possibly be uh, any survivors? NASA has said it. Dan Rather. first wave was disbelief. This can't be happening. Because we, we being, we reporters who covered uh, NASA, and I've been covering NASA since the very early 1960s. I actually was very fortunate. I was standing on the grass of Rice Stadium in Houston when President Kennedy first committed the nation to landing on the moon before the end of the decade. You know, I remember the, the sh- literal shiver that went through me. And right behind the shiver was a, you know, a, a, a surge of pride that our president was committing us to this, you know, as a nation, as a people, as a society. How would you characterize the aftermath, you know, starting, I guess, with the fact that, uh, well, I mean, maybe the first thing is that Reagan made kind of one of the great speeches of all time. Yeah, Reagan's speech is interesting. I, I was really hoping to get to talk to his speechwriter, Peggy Noonan, who, who's gone on to, you know, be a, an important person in her own right. I, I didn't realize until I started looking into this that she was only 32 when she wrote that speech, which seems, you know, really young to be yeah. uh, to be so high up in the speechwriting office. 
for this president and, and, you know, to be tapped to write this incredibly important speech. President Ronald Reagan speaking from the Oval Office the night of the disaster. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. He knew the president knew he was going to have to speak to the children of America because the children had been encouraged to get so emotionally involved in this particular flight. But he knew he was talking to adults as well, you know, many adults who would, who remembered the Apollo era and its triumphs and, you know, would need to be assured that this this was not going to be the end of spaceflight. Um, but the Cold War is still going on, and he's, so he's also addressing people all over the world, some of whom were hoping to see us fail in this arena that still seemed, you know, very closely connected to a kind of, you know, offshoot of the military or a sort of wing of the Cold War. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the schoolchildren of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow. He says very clearly the crew would have wanted spaceflight to go on, and spaceflight will go on. Um, and that kind of gives me chills when I watch it now. You know, that's a decisive thing to say on the same day, you know, six or seven hours after this has happened. Well, so talk me through the investigation of the incident that took place afterward. Yeah, Reagan appointed a commission, so it was a presidential commission. Um, He appointed William Rogers, who was a former Secretary of State, um, as its head. And that happened just a few days after, so it was February 3rd that he appointed this commission. Um, and William Rogers immediately started pulling together commissioners, hiring a staff, and he had a, a really clear goal for the commission from the beginning, which is that he didn't want it to be another Warren commission, which is to say he, he never wanted anyone to be able to say this was a whitewash, that you know the, the government had convened sort of a fake commission in order to let NASA off the hook. This was going to be a real investigation. They were really going to get to the heart of what went wrong, no matter who is behind it or whose head was going to roll. They were going to make real recommendations to keep something like this from ever happening again. Donald Coutinho was an Air Force general and member of the Rogers Commission that was investigating the disaster. He turned out to be instrumental in bringing a crucial piece of evidence before the commission about the O-rings in the shuttle joints. And it turns out that he got that evidence from another commission member, Sally Ride, the famous astronaut, in a moment that's, like, straight out of a film noir, here's his recollection of what happened. Sally Ride is a NASA lady. She works for NASA. And one day, she and I are walking in the basement after one of these preparatory sessions. She is looking straight ahead, not saying a word, and I'm just walking alongside her not saying a word. She opens up her notebook and with her left hand, while she's looking straight ahead, gives me a piece of paper. Does not say a single word. 
I look at the piece of paper. It's got two columns on it. It's a NASA paper. The first column is temperature, and the second column is the resiliency of O-rings as a function of temperature, which shows that they get stiff when the temperature gets cold. She figured she could trust me to give me that paper and not implicate her or the people at NASA that gave it to her, because they would all get fired by NASA. NASA was really nasty. So at this point, Katina's got this evidence, but now he's got to figure out how he's going to bring it to the attention of the commission without selling out Sally Ride or any of her sources at NASA. So he comes up with a scheme to kind of indirectly tell Richard Feynman, the noted physicist who was also on the commission. So I got to get it into the commission some way or other. I have Feynman at my house for dinner. So we walk out the side door of the kitchen into the garage. Well, I do my own work on cars, and what I had done is taken the carburetor out of this car so I can clean it. And we walk by there, and Feynman says, what's this? And I said, oh, just the carburetor. I'm cleaning up the dang thing, and I got it apart, going to put it together. And just inadvertently, not pre-planned at all, just inadvertently, I say, Professor, you know, these carburetors have O-rings in them, and when it gets cold, they leak. Do you suppose that has something to do with our problem? He does not say a word. We finish the night, and then the next Tuesday is when he does his O-ring thing in in the commission. So what Katina's referring to there is this really kind of legendary moment from the commission's hearings when Feynman takes the O-ring out of a shuttle joint that's being passed around this room, puts it in his glass of ice water, and then after letting it sit for a little while, takes it out and uses it to demonstrate that uh, the rubber behaves differently at lower temperatures. Part of what the Rogers Commission found was that this was bigger than just these O-rings. It was also about the decision-making structure at NASA because of that finding, because of these larger systemic findings. Shuttle program was suspended. There were sweeping personnel changes at NASA millions of dollars of settlements paid out both by NASA and by the government contractor to the astronauts' families. It was a real setback. They did get to the heart of what went wrong with the solid rocket boosters, not only from a technical level, but from a management level as well. They delved thoroughly into the late-night teleconference the night before, who made what decisions, who put what pressure on whom, um, and in their report, they, they addressed the the failing of management very specifically and and pretty accurately, I think. So what would you say is kind of the legacy of Challenger? I mean, that's obviously a a huge question, but um, yeah, I'm I'm curious what you'd say. Yeah, that's a question I started asking of everyone I spoke to for this, and it is such a huge question, and it always caused this awkward pause. But even people who have the most anger still... um, wanted to tell me that the legacy of Challenger should be a positive one, that spaceflight should go on, that the purpose of this mission was an educational mission, and that that, you know, that, that, that was taken really seriously by all of the crew. So if we want to do something to remember Challenger, we should do something to support education, like the Challenger Centers for Education that were started by, um, mostly by June Scobie Rogers and Jane Smith, the wives of the commander and pilot. Um, really made it their project to start the Center for Education because they felt like that was the best way to remember this crew and their educational mission. 
Steve Nesbitt, NASA Public Affairs Officer working at Mission Control. The primary thing that I always felt in every mission since the Challenger uh, accident was uh, that first two minutes and five seconds before our bees separate. You know, every mission after that that I watched, I always had my fingers crossed for that first two minutes and five seconds. John Zarella, CNN correspondent covering the launch. Oh, just this remarkable flying machine that could do something that no vehicle had ever done before. And we don't know that in our lifetimes, certainly not in our lifetimes, there will ever be a vehicle that will do what the space shuttles could do. Fly off, you know, of, of, on a rocket, go into space, service the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, grab onto satellites, fix them in the cargo bay, throw them back out into orbit, uh, build an international space station, you know, and then when their job was done, land back on Earth on a run. We're never going to see that again in our lifetime. Dan Rather. As you know, later, there was a plan to put uh, uh, journalists in space. With a challenger, they put a school teacher first, Ms. McCullough. Uh, but behind her, they were going to put others uh, uh, besides teachers, politicians. And there was a plan to put journalists. And I had dreamed of being that journalist that, that was the first to go into space. It was not a it, the dream told by the wayside. It was not to be because with this explosion, they ended that whole program immediately. Oh, I'd have gone in a second. Bill Wood. Kent Shocknick, anchor for the LANBC affiliate KNBC. Challenger represented everything that's right with the American spirit of adventure and everything that's wrong with callous bureaucracies. I think the Challenger explosion did not have a lasting impact on the, the boosterism that seems to accompany much space exploration reporting because it is still such an exciting endeavor there is an awful lot of cheerleading going on and an awful lot of reporting of risk that gets swept under the carpet. How Your World Works is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. To read our full oral history of the Challenger disaster, go to popularmechanics.com. I'm Kevin Deepsick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>